0: Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, brought to you by the Digital Orthopedics Conference of San Francisco, or DocSF, in partnership with the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. In this second of three podcasts from DocSF Venture, our virtual event held in January 2022, focusing on the digital health investments in the musculoskeletal space from 2021, I have the privilege of interviewing Robin Young on his perspective on what these massive investments mean for the future of digital orthopedics. Please join me and Robin on a DACA Venture virtual stage. I have the honor and privilege of interviewing Robin Young. Now, Rob has been part of the orthopedic ecosystem, he tells me, for about 35 years. He's best known as the CEO of the Pearl Diver Database and is publisher of the Orthopedics This Week magazine and website. It's the largest and most widely read publication in the world, in the orthopedic world, with over 300,000 subscribers. And this, he ties to, to this, I should say, he ties 25 years of experience on Wall Street, thousands of articles, published, several textbook chapters, six books of his own, experience as a medtech entrepreneur, a presence on the media circuit for Wall Street Journal and CNBC. And in other words, we're just delighted to have him here to give us his opinion on how to understand this data. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Robin, look, we want to go over Nancy's data in just a minute. But before I bring up that deck, or at least a few slides from that deck. Let's take a step back and see what does this information represent? In fact, I think I will bring up this deck right off the bat just so we have it available. This is a lot of money going to digital health. And what we're seeing is correcting for mega deals, this big trend up the dark blue. The dark blue is the muscle, skeletal digital health investments. The light blue are the more traditional med tech kind of investments. There's a big drop off. Uh, and a big rise in digital health. How do we interpret it, and and what does this mean? Whose opinion is this represent? To me,
1: I think that in many respects, to me, that represents smart money. The orthopedic and spine industry has been maturing now for the last roughly ten years, and the rates of return, however you want to measure them, have been slowing. It's it's a slow growth industry right now, four or five percent. But some of these new technologies, these digital technologies, robotics, augmented reality, additive manufacturing, all these software-based technologies, which are really very new and very early in their life life cycles, these represent some pretty substantial changes to the industry. And I think they represent new, really significant wealth-generating technologies. The industry is ripe for some of these new digital technologies. They'll make surgeries more accurate. They'll make surgeries more cost effective. They'll reduce readmission rates. They'll be better for patients, for hospitals, for repairs. The kind of wealth that can be generated with these new technologies, I think is really substantial. And, and so to me, I think this is these investors coming in. That's what they see. They see, you know, basically what happened to retailing when Amazon came in or what happened to taxi cabs when Uber came in or hotels for Airbnb and so forth, they see how these really innovative software-generated technologies could really have a significant impact on the, on the business of orthopedics and spine care.
0: So what I'm hearing you say, Robin, is wealth creation in this space going forward will come from these digital interfaces, these technologies.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're going to see a group of companies coming into an industry That again, slow top line growth, shrinking margins, relying on kind of non-innovative 510K approvals. So this new generation coming in is just the opposite. Rapid revenue growth, margin expansion, above average rates of return. We haven't seen that in this industry for at least a decade. And here we have a whole new raft of companies which are being driven by really a different group of entrepreneurs. Different group of engineers, software engineers. It's very exciting time right now, and uh, I'm not at all surprised to see this trend. And I would expect it will the trend will continue.
0: It's funny you should mention the difference between the two. It's it's so culturally different. I mean, if you, I always spend a fair amount of time with the tech industry, and the pace of turnover for product development it's a matter of weeks, months, and in an industry it's just traditionally just been and because of the regulations and the challenges of doing it but it takes two three years to bring new product to market and there's this massive difference in approaching to in that way it's approached that may shake up things a little bit don't you think there'll be, there'll be a cultural well, clash of giants <laughs> well without question without question That's all true. right let's go on to this next slide this is where uh nancy broke things down but the amount of money being invested over the years and, and the dollar rounds. Are, so you see, these $5 million rounds were predominant in 2018, they made up more than half the rounds mm-hmm. investments. But you fast forward to 2021. That's no longer the case. In fact, it's the minority percentage of rounds of that small. you see rounds in the 50, to 100 million dollar range quite commonly, and even seven rounds at over 200, at over 100 million, at 200 million dollars on average. So that's on, on total. That's a tremendous amount of money. What does that mean? How do how do we interpret this change in the amount of investment, the types, the uh, the quality, the quantitative amount of investment going to the
1: into the wow. process? First, I think it's important to just reiterate a key point here. These are venture investments. We're not talking about private equity firms investing in consolidating hospitals. These are, these are venture investments. Well, certainly when it is an early stage investment, and again, this trend has been going on for more than five years, early stage investments at the seed level, or, you know, first round level, they'll tend to be smaller, five million, maybe six, seven, eight million. But to get a software-driven company up to the point that it's viable, uh, Stanford University recently did a study. It takes about 25 to $30 million to be to get to viability. Now, to really grow it and grab market share and become a market leader takes substantially more. And in the orthopedics world, probably the most famous first-stage high-tech product company was Mako Surgical. Which is Mako Robotics. They invested all in about 360 million dollars to get to a stage where they found a buyer, which was Striker, which purchased the company for 1.7 billion. And then once it was in Striker, it became a catalyst for giving Striker really excellent rates of growth into the into the market. So it's it it, I, it makes sense that the dollar figures are increasing as the years go on. I think it reflects more mature investment opportunities, companies that are now moving into their second or third round. And some of these technologies, particularly robotics, do require higher levels of investment.
0: And, and I think not everybody realizes that the delta between what you invest and what you get out when you sell the company is because you've taken risk. And the companies are more than willing to accept that you're taking this risk offline. They will then buy the company at a premium because it's been de-risked. Oh, that's finance. right. Yeah,
1: That's exactly right.
0: So one more question is, okay, so we know that venture capital, generally speaking, the rounds, the funds that they raise need to be flipped every five years and private equities in a seven-year time frame. Is that how long it's going to take for this money to play out in terms of products that I'll see coming to market and knocking on my door, so to speak?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, it actually actually goes back to your previous slide. When you saw how the rate of investments the amount of dollars coming in is really accelerating pretty rapidly a lot of the reason for that is these investors are coming in and they do see how rapidly these new technologies are getting traction and they do expect to get start seeing some pretty significant returns in a three to five year period and that would include using the public markets as an exit vehicle not necessarily that a strategic would buy them out although there is all of the major, say, the take, take the top seven orthopedic companies, they are all sitting on top of significant amount of capital right now. They all understand that their world is changing rapidly, going towards more of a digital future. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see every one of the top seven or eight companies in the next three to five years make dramatic investments in this area. So I, I absolutely, I think part of the reason you see these capital flows is these investors have quite a bit of confidence that they'll see their returns coming in three to five years.
0: I think that your, uh, your prophecy was already shown to be true when, I think last week, we saw a striker <laughs> spent yeah, $3 billion right. on yeah. uh, vocera <laughs> and, e, and, and I was reading the analyst
1: uh, reports on it, and virtually all of them are pretty sure it's dilutive. Striker. Striker may care. I don't want to impose, give you know be flip about this, but they are willing to accept, I think, a dilutive investment today because they are clearly looking out three, five years from now. And I do think these new technologies, again, are getting traction and will have a very discernible effect faster than many people think.
0: I agree. The changing of the guards, a uh, changing of the business model so. in some ways. I think so. So talking about business models, this is how Nancy broke the venture investment trends down by category. And she has this category as, um, I like it, orthofacilitative ancillary products. They're not necessarily focused on orthopedics, but they're useful to musculoskeletal care, like wearables and sensors. Seriously, there's so much of the technology that's become readily accessible to us has to do with motion, and motion, of course, is what it's all about. And so we can actually take advantage of these technologies that were developed, if nothing else, for the sports industry and for the gaming industry, with lots of funding, hey, they work perfectly in our space. These are also facilitative. And then these platform plays to the left here with digital assistants, but also virtual uh, scribes, for example. So what are your thoughts about these categories, and how can we interpret these investments?
1: First of all, kudos to Nancy. This is really terrific uh, piece of work she did. So looking very quickly at the ortho-facilitative, the 63% wearables, sensors, app, telemedicine, even pain management, very quickly, to me, they look like data collector products. And indeed, we are seeing this revolution in smart implants, smart wearables, smart sensors, where... It's going to be a constant real-time streaming of data coming from the patient through rehab, after rehab, in a variety of settings. All of these things, to me, are digital data suppliers, data collecting, products. Now, let me define what an intelligent, so-called smart implant or wearable is. That That has three attributes. First, it can sense and collect data. Two, it is a small computer. It will process that data. Three, it is linked into an external network. It will drop its data into some data domain where it now becomes useful as a diagnostic tool, perhaps even at a patient's home to help the patient manage their own care. So, and even pain management, not many people realize how that, how quickly that practice is changing. Pain management right now is one of the most innovative sectors in orthopedics and spine. And you're getting, in effect, pacemaker like technologies. A lot of computing power where they're literally laying electrodes over the nerve systems themselves the nerves and they're almost modulating the signals that are going through the nervous system and the computer is managing that process all programmable all connected to external networks all of those to me are digital they're data collecting and of course the digital assistants scheduling an office flow i mean just in case people weren't aware of this Payers one of the biggest issues with payers is managing all the claims management and all these various contracts. You know, I'm sure your institution, you you probably have you know 80 or 90 different contracts depending on the department that work with all the different payer systems. Here, artificial intelligence systems are now helping to manage that, and in the process, they are mapping out surgeon behavior, institutional behavior, all of that, and that's coming out of the payers. So. The big areas here, they all look digital to me.
0: (laughs) No, I I love this idea of looking at these as data acquisition tools and bringing forth the case that the insurers, the payers are already collecting data in this space and using it to drive Mm -hmm. patients to physicians and clinics and and, uh, hospitals that optimize quality outcomes, access, the whole Bundle. But mm-hmm. what physicians and clinics are doing, they're not realizing that these tools are ways for them to collect the data in some ways, almost to fight back to create. Uh, to, to To understand data before it's used against them, to optimize their own processes, to find value in their own processes and bring them back to the payers and say, look, this is what you should be paying for. And I think there's a bit of a gap there. On our end, we're so worried about reimbursement, but we're not so much worried about and should be more worried about how do we create our own data collection strategies? How do we embrace these tools, um, not just for patient care, but so we can optimize our own processes. Mm-hmm. So your thoughts about looking at these as, data acquisition tools more than anything else, any other labels attached to them, I think that's really clever. Um, Moving on to the next slide, one of my favorite in Nancy's deck is this one. It breaks down the investments by technology type. And she points out that 50% of MSK investments involve technologies using AI at their core. And then uh, we can highlight these They're here. And, but but these start with the second one. So let's take a second and look at remote care real quick because that came out number one. It hasn't been number one every year. We'll see that in a minute. But remote care is fascinating to me for a bunch of reasons. But how does this fit into the broader ecosystem of investments that are happening, not just in orthopedics but in healthcare in general?
1: First of all, you know we have to say that the pandemic did accelerate a lot of existing trends and the trend moving out of the a big hospital downtown to uh, ASCs or the or the strip mall or or clinic whatever uh, that really accelerated with the uh, the pandemic. Remote care is highly dependent on communication ability and actually software and other things. I think remote care, uh, while it got goosed during the pandemic, is a long term powerful trend. Yes, it includes moving to to smaller clinics, ambulatory surgery centers, to the home. I think that trend with technologies, specifically these digital technologies, that's a real accelerator to remote care. We haven't seen how far that can go yet. Uh, my sense is it's very early stage. Ultimately, when we look back in five years, we may be surprised to see how sophisticated it became How really powerful it became in the, in the home and how we're really, it's almost as if the doctor could be in the home or, you know, some part of the, of the healthcare system. So I, I'm fascinated to see where this goes. I'm already looking at some rehab services that use avatars and, you know, some other things. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've seen the ads for the mirror, which is an exercise system. This is an AI driven program. This this may give us a clue where we're going with remote care, that kind of a system.
0: The amount of money going to the hospital home space, primarily from private equity, is phenomenal. And that money is not going to be wasted. It will go to building infrastructures that we can tap into as orthopedic surgeons. You know, when I talk about this space, I think about this space, and we did have a beautiful thing last year, DocSF, the main event that we did with um, Soul Machines to showcase mm-hmm. what it would be like to have a human-like avatar that is completely plugged into everything to answer questions to patient recovery, to show people that if they judge telehealth by what we have today with Zoom, they're missing the boat. It's like saying that the maximum potential for online banking is what we had in the days of dial-up. And today it's a very different experience.
1: I saw a magnificent new program coming out of again Stanford University of all places. I didn't go to Stanford so I, I could be a little flipped about this. but it was a chronic pain management program that did that was based at the home, very creative, really effective. The data was, was really surprising. I used them on one of my uh, one of my seminars. Uh, so I, there's a lot of innovation happening here, and I'm excited about where it can go.
0: Absolutely. So dropping down into the next category, which is the number one category, is all this AI. AI-guided clinical decision-making, AI-based triage, scheduling workflow platforms, AI-guided surgical assistance, AI-driven preventive care, pre- uh, rehab and treatment. How do we see the world of AI impacting orthopedics? Do you think this is... These are the areas that will be the primary um, beneficial benefit, provide the primary benefit to our specialty. I think this is where the most
1: disruption is likely to come. And I have a, my gut feeling is that we, the orthopedic and spine world, we aren't fully, we haven't fully recognized how truly disruptive these can be. But let me back up. Let's talk about what's available, what's really here now. Now, right now, I mentioned the payer systems are employing AI to manage claims management and also to look at patient map physician behavior. But several hospital systems are testing AI programs, and they use these big data systems, uh, pattern recognition systems, to analyze the doctor-patient engagement process, to try to coordinate follow-up care, to do a lot with chronic, care, uh, chronic disease care, dosing, pharma dosing, or contraindications. One system out of Missouri Mercy Health used a, a really nice AI program out of one of the companies in Silicon Valley, and they used it to map out their patient care patterns and found enough savings. They issued did a press release about a year ago that they saved 15.8 million dollars in the first year, and they only had 56% of the cases were in the program. That's pretty encouraging, and obviously they're. They're investing further in that the other thing i'd point out is just a couple of years ago the fda approved the first ai system to read ct images of the spine the reality is computer systems today have better vision than humans they can see faster better more accurately more in more detail this system that the fda approved came out of israeli based adoc medical It has the capability to read a CT scan in 3.9 minutes and come back with a a diagnosis with a 95% confidence interval. And that compares to 58 minutes for a trained human radiologist. Gives us a clue where this is going. Imaging will be a big factor. Pattern recognition, looking at doctor patient care patterns. I think that's where it'll really get its traction and affect Frankly, how you and your colleagues work with patients.:
0: I couldn't agree more. I think clinical decision support will look back and go, "I wonder how we live without it. I think it'll be very similar conceptually to the way we interface with Google Maps or Apple Maps, yeah, where yeah. you it's in the background, it's helping you, It's clean direction. You do the work, but it's giving you all the information you need to be efficient in the clinic or in surgery. And uh, once we have it, We'll look back and go, oh, of well,
1: course. Yeah. Now, I I said earlier that I, I wonder whether we really understand how powerful this is likely to be. So if, if I if you don't mind, let me and I may be I may be overstating this. I accept that, but probably not. So if you don't mind, let me kind of give a little example of where this might be going because the punchline here is some of these new systems are actually creative. So we all know the story of IBM Watson's beating Gary Kasparov, so that it showed that uh, a, a AI computer could be a better chess player. That was in 1997. About nine years later, another program called Stockfish 8, Stockfish 8, beat IBM Watson and was the new crowned world chess champion. Now, that Stockfish 8 beat it with pure brute power. It could do 70 million chess positions. It could calculate 70 million chess positions in a second. It had two centuries of chess moves in its database, and it crushed Big Blue with brute power. A year later, now remember, it was nine years between Watson and Stockfish 8, one year later, Stockfish 8 was beaten, and it was beaten by a program called Alpha Zero. Now, where Stockfish 8 could calculate 70 million chess moves in a second, Alpha Zero only did 80,000 chess positions in a second. Where Stockfish 8 had centuries of chess moves, uh, Alpha Zero had zero chess moves in its database, and. All Alpha Zero did, it just studied chess for four hours. That's it. And it crushed stockfish eight. What it did, it brought deep learning or pattern recognition AI and pattern recognition AI will beat brute power computing. And what Alpha Zero did, it found new solutions that had evaded human all the brilliant millions of players for hundreds of years it found new solutions creative solutions to playing chess and the minute it got creative it was end of the story for stockfish 8 because all it knew was what humans had always done but what alpha 0 knew alpha 0 could create a new move a creative approach and that when that comes into orthopedics and it's on the way And it has access to big data domains of patient records where it can look for treatment patterns. I think we're going to be hitting what I call the cognitive revolution. Yeah. And that we're going to see stuff we may not even know what we're looking at.
0: I would just say don't judge the future potential of technology by what it is today. Because that would right. be a mistake. I now, agree. I, in the interest of time, I want to. We could talk about this slide for quite some time, but I'm very interested to look at this slide because yes. this tells us the trend of that same graph over time. These are the top six areas, and it's relatively consistent, as your point It's AI, AI, AI across the top, specifically around decision making, decision making, decision support, lots of money. Uh, If you go across the top here, it's over a billion and a half, almost uh, a billion and a quarter over the last four years alone. got into this uh, type of AI. So we expect to see it play fruit pretty quickly. Uh, And the other ones are remote patient care always in here and VR and AR at the bottom. But when you see these trends, Robin, does this remind you of anything else that you may have studied or want to share with us? I think I know I have an idea (laughs) you might.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... uh, we are, I think, at the early stages of a big of a big technological change. And I've been through a few of these in my career. And I know we have a slide later that shows sort of what happened with with innovation in in the spine world over 20 years. How many do you think? Want uh well, first of all, I do want to point out the fact that remote patient care was number one in 2021 is probably pandemic mm-hmm. induced. So yeah, why don't we go to the spine slide now? We'll just talk about that. So, this is a chart of all the spine patents that were issued between 1980 and 2020. And what you'll notice with the, with the filing of the Steffi plate, which is the very first real serious uh, spine patent, applications peaked in 2007. Patents granted peaked in 2016. Those companies, this was the time to invest in those companies to maximize your returns. And you can see most of the investments, if you were wanting to invest in this, technological move. And this was really the move from bracing to an implant instrument business. This was a move when it was really just off in the corner, just a a side thought in most every serious orthopedic company was not in spine to the point that it's probably the largest sector in orthopedics, largest subsector in orthopedics. But basically you would invest down at the bottom of this curve to right about the midsection and begin divesting, begin to take profits, probably from about 2002 to 2007. And if you weren't out by 2016, you're you're gonna be you're gonna have a hard time finding a buyer. So the investment thesis here is pretty much buy whatever, buy them all, just be a fund, and start scaling out as as the innovation peaks. And that's I think you. You would probably, you might lit, you might miss the last 10% of return, but you will have made 30 times your money by then anyway. I think that pattern is absolutely analogous to where we are with digital health today. Mm-hmm. Today we are down in the foothills and now is the time. If you're going to be making investments, now is the time to do it. And I think this is, we're at the beginning of this growth curve in terms of innovation. And I think these innovative, these innovations are going to earn their way. They are going to cut costs. They are going to improve outcomes. They are going to rationalize orthopedics and spine. So they will pay for themselves in that way. And that will generate higher returns. You know, the entire industry does about $53 billion in revenue right now. It's probably mm-hmm. with a, with a you know, price to sales ratio of three and a half to four, something like that. So if you can pull out 10, 15 billion of that in terms of savings or returns with these digital technologies, multiply that times four. And that's the kind of return available for some of these investors today. So putting in $200 million, not unreasonable given what's potent, what the potential is. And, I, and I'll say finally, the core demand for these services that is an aging population around the world it is locked in for the next decade or two. So the core demand for the services is gonna continue to grow year in and year out. It's like a 20-year annuity, but treating these patients more efficiently, more reliably, more predictably with these new tools unlocks significant wealth, I think. And I think this, the reason I like this chart is it kind of illustrates that.
0: Absolutely. When we started DocSF five years ago, Rob, and we we're sort of trying to bring people's attention to this. And at that time, it wasn't quite so obvious. But as the years go by, people are starting to realize this is the future. This is the future growth pattern. And uh, we're excited to be the hottest space in the, in orthopedics for so now is digital. Right. Um, Thank you very much, Robin. That was a phenomenal conversation. We went all over the map from the details of investments all the way up to the bigger picture of how this fits into the historical scheme of things of how investments play out over time. I
1: I appreciate you and I appreciate all that you're doing. You're you're a true leader in this area and it's my honor to be part of this. Thank you
0: hope you enjoyed the presentation and invite you to tune in next week when we bring you our conversation exploring the ore of tomorrow with Ashley Libby Diaz, Danny Goel, Chris Sieminao, Kren Trauner, and Rick Angelo, each leading companies impacting the way we think about digital surgery. In the meantime, go over to docaseth.health and sign up for Docaseth experience and hey, join the revolution. there since we've still got your attention we wanted to give you a little insight into what we have planned for you at doc sf the experience our remarkable annual event we're planning to host DocSF live in san francisco on thursday april 28th and friday april 29th 2022 and well it's going to be extraordinary you don't want to miss it here's how we described it a DocSF sf venture in january 2022